don't have the little microphone. So I'll be speaking from this microphone. Hopefully he got that message. Today, um, I kind of titled this, if you want to call it a series, I'll explain that in a second. At Our Foundation, Living Hope, At Our Foundation, like a, a, an ongoing series of the theology of ministry, like what we're all about. How do we do ministry? Uh, you know, what's at the foundation? Uh, what's the theology of our ministry and life together? I was thinking that this is really kind of an ongoing series, and thinking through the last year and a half, we've done a few uh, sermons that have to do with like the core foundation of who we are at Living Hope. Uh, for example, uh, back in September a year ago, year and, year and a couple of months ago, we did a, a message on the, the vision and the, the purpose of, uh, or the, the mission and vision of, of Living Hope. Now, uh, how many of you guys could tell the vision and mission of Living Hope? Well, you probably could in your own words, and that would be good, uh, but we do have a vision and mission statement. We'll probably need to bring that back out sometime this year and look at it. Uh, following that, Greg preached on... Um, some truths from a book that we were reading, and it's biblical truths, but from the book Trellis and the Vine, and it was talking about how Living Hope is an organic ministry. In other words, we're not program-driven. We have programs. We have Monday nights. We have the regular Sabbath day worships. We have some things that we do, men's uh, time on Tuesdays, women's time once a month or so, um, but we're not program-driven. We're more organic in nature, meaning we do ministry on a life-to-life, day-to-day uh, situation by situation kind of things. Um, the trellis, if you know what a trellis is, is like the structure. It can be all different materials, wooden or metal or whatever, that vines or roses grow on. Like if you want them to, to grow over your garage, you might put like a trellis across the garage and that vine will grow that direction. So we would say that the structure, the programs are not unimportant, uh, but they can be changed. They can be modified, but the vine is uh, from the, the root and that really can't be changed. It can be directed, but not really changed. So we talked about that. Um, then we also talked about the means of grace. We talked about that Living Hope is a means of grace church. And what we meant by that is uh, we're about the ordinary means of God's grace. God ordinarily works uh, and ordinarily does his extraordinary work through the ordinary means of God's word, studying it, preaching it, prayer, um, and the sacraments, giving ourselves over to the, to the word of God, the sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. And we're all about those primary things, the ordinary ways God works. We're not about taking up some um, cause that becomes our main purpose and our main cause. Our main cause uh, comes from studying and knowing uh, the Lord through his word, through scriptures, through the sacraments, and through fellowship. So we talked about the ordinary means of grace. Uh, but ordinary means of grace doesn't mean that God doesn't do extraordinary works through those ordinary means. So, uh, but today we're going to talk about the, the definition and the place of gospel community uh, within life and ministry. So what's the, the place of gospel community within the life and ministry of, of living hope? So we're going to be talking about that today, and we're going to still be on the, kind of the same series next week. And we're going to do the place uh, of the word and life and ministry, the place of God's word and life and ministry. And next week, we'll, be, we'll do a big picture of Psalm 119. Now, I said a big picture because if you know Psalm 119, it has 176 verses, and we're not going to be here all day. So we'll do the big picture of, of that and the purpose and place of God's word and life and ministry. 
Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started on uh, today's. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you call us together as your bride and as your church. And Father, I pray today that you would help turn our attention to how you call us. You don't call us primarily individually. Uh, Certainly you do that. But Father, you more often call us as a body and as a church. So Father, I pray that today we would start getting a vision of how maybe this year we could start as the body, the living hope body, this particular body of Christ, that we could get a picture of how we can uh, look at the scriptures together as a, a community. Father, as we can confess our sins, I pray that we would do that more corporately. And Father, I pray that you would lead us to that because you want to have a people for your own possession, not just a person. So Father, I pray that to that end, to your glory, uh, you would call us together as the body of Christ as we study your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Grammar. I'm not good at it. Uh, How many of you guys struggle with grammar? Any of you? Yeah. Um, And I I didn't like it in school. Uh, I always said, well, I'm not a good speller. I'm not good at grammar because I'm an engineer. I'm not an English major. I don't do the the uh, arts so much or uh, the liberal arts, I do engineering. So in engineering, I would always say that, you know, but that didn't, you know, I was a cop out. But uh, what's the big deal about grammar? And I had a teacher that would say often, uh, grammar can be the difference between life and death. And then she would give me examples of how if you read it this way versus this way, it's a matter of life and death. But then she would always say this, And uh, in this particular class, it's the difference between failing and passing. And I'm like, good point, right? So either way, that was a big deal. And I knew that uh, the difference between failing and passing was a big deal to me, but it was a bigger deal to my parents. And so grammar became uh, the difference of knowing grammar or not knowing grammar at the end of the day was the difference in being blessed by my parents or cursed by my parents. It was a very much and could be a a matter of life and of death. Well, the Bible uh, is um, unapologetically plural. And what I mean by that is it calls a people of God. God died to make a people for his own possession, not just persons for for his own possession. So uh, we read the Bible and we do our Christian life so much with a me mentality and uh, an individualistic mindset. We tend to think about me, and individualistically, we read the Bible. Things like, I was in darkness, but now I am in the light, um, and I should walk as in the light. I read the Bible, and I read about the instruction to pray, and I'm like, this is how I should pray. Uh, I read Ephesians 6, and I'm like, I have to put on the full armor of God so that I won't uh, fall to the schemes of Satan. I read the Bible, and I I read about my need to repentance, and I say, I need to repent of my sins. And then I look at you guys, and I'm like, well, you guys really need to repent of your sins, right? We read read the Bible very individualistically, and uh, we focus on a personal relationship with Christ. We focus on personal evangelism. I used to go to a a Christian camp that my father-in-law was one of the key persons that started it. Have Have anybody heard of the Wilds Christian camp? A lot of you have. I, every time I went there, they would make a big deal uh, multiple times a day, it, and they did it over a loudspeaker. And so we would be at the whole camp, and you could hear the loudspeaker, it is now time for God and I time. And you would be, take the next 15 minutes for God and I time. And you would hear that over, you know, every, every day. 
God and I time. So it's all this personal thing. We talk about our relationship with the Lord. And so many people, you start talking to them about what they believe and about their relationship with the Lord and about their struggles. And they kind of like put their hands up, maybe metaphorically speaking, sometimes literally. And they're like, no, that's very personal to me. My relationship with the Lord is personal matter, right? And we don't want to talk about our struggles and our sin and, and issues. We live our Christian life uh, very much uh, individualistically with a me mentality and all that. Now, um, while there's truth to be talked about, about personal relationships and about personal evangelism, certainly those are truths that we need to talk about in the Bible. The New Testament was primarily, almost entirely written to a people group, not to individuals. Almost entirely written to a, a, a city or a region, in particular churches or groups of people, the ecclesia, the, the church, um, when you come together as the church. And even the, the very few letters that are written to individuals, they're always <clears throat> written with more than the individual in mind, with a teaching of more. For example, in uh, Philemon, it's written for, to Philemon, but it has a big-time corporate uh, context written for just more than Philemon. Even in the text, it says to Philemon, but then it says to our sister and to Archippus, our, 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 our fellow soldier, and to all the church that is in your house. So even though it's written to Philemon, it's really written to the whole church that's meeting in that house. Now, um, in most languages, there is a distinction, a clear distinction between the singular me or you and the plural you. You can always tell, like, is it you or y'all, right? But in the English language, I can say you, and if I'm looking like at Kevin back there, you, and you guys all notice that I'm looking at a particular person, you might not, you might tune me out, right? You're not really talking to me. But if I look and say you, all of a sudden, just my head looking at all of you kind of makes you think, well, he's talking to all of us. But if we read the, the Greek, in the Greek, there's a clear distinction between the singular you and the plural you. And there's even a distinction, and we don't have time to go into the detail, but when you say you, and you mean each one of you, there's even another word in the Greek that most often in our Greek text, the Bible, if we were reading the Greek, we would be able to tell, was it talking about you individually? You corporately, or you corporately, but with a very particular individual uh, ones of you in the corporate you um, context. But with the English language, we read the Bible and it says, confess your sins, right? Does that mean yours plural or yours individually? Um, and it's a big deal. Scripture is very unapologetically plural. So uh, there's about a thousand pronouns for the word you being singular in our New Testament. In other words, there's a thousand times that the word you is singular in the New Testament. But uh, more than double that, it's plural. So 2,200 nearly plural use in the New Testament. So uh, is it a big deal? And it really is. Um, so there's even in a subject, the subject is expressed in particular forms, like a, a, a subject, it can be a pronoun, you, singular, pronoun, you, plural, but there's also the verb form, and it could say walk. And in the Greek language, it'll tell you the difference, y'all walk or you walk. So it's pretty neat how the Greek language works and how God picked that particular language to give us the original uh, Bible. We can tell more distinct of, of what God was saying, like, I want you guys to repent, not just you. I want y'all as a group to repent. 
versus just you. So um, I gave you some examples of how we individually look at scriptures. At the first, I said that uh, I was in darkness, but now I'm in great light, so I should walk as children of light. Uh, this is how I should pray, the instructions being that God gives us that in, in Matthew chapter uh, 6. This is how I should pray, the Lord's Prayer. And then I, I quoted in Ephesians 6, I have put on the armor of God so that I could stand against all the schemes of the devil. Well, every one of those are plural. When he says that uh, you were in darkness, he was saying, you guys, as a people, you were in darkness, but now you, the church, the body of Christ, living hope, you're in the light of the gospel. Uh, the same thing when he says, put your armor on, he's talking to a group. He's not saying, okay, Kevin, put yours on, and Anna, put yours on, and Tim, put yours on. He's saying, put yours on as a body of Christ. Well, does that make a difference? Absolutely. We start caring about each other's armor being on, right? And our armor together as one uh, being on. And so we so often miss uh, the grammar. <laughs> and because we miss the grammar, we miss what God is trying to tell us to do as the body of Christ, as the church. God intends us to live the life of Christ, to live it out in the, the disciplines of community and not in isolation to one another. And so often we read the Bible in very much isolation, me text, individualistic kind of text. There's a, at least 58 one another's in scripture. Some of those are like love one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, rebuke one another, be tender to one another, be hospitable to one another, and about what, 49 more or more than that? Um, and outside the context of deep, close, regular friendships, those one another's would have no meaning, right? They would have no meaning. So it says one another outside the context of having those relationships. So the call to be, let's take one as an example, be long-suffering to one another. Uh, or you could say forbear with one another. So if somebody gets on your nerves like, oh, man, God says forbear with that person. Well, how many of you guys saw somebody at Christmas that you only see about once a year? generally. A lot, a lot of you. And most often we find that we, we see people, it's not hard to forbear with those people. Now it might be for that day, but for your life it's not hard because you don't think about them for a whole year. But it's very difficult to forbear with people that you see, what, every day? And it's more difficult to, to forbear with those people, and that's the context that God calls us to do one another's in, to forbear with one another on that kind of level. We can consider, we mentioned the idea of repentance, and we think that God calls me to repent of my sins, but in Revelation 2 and 3, God writes uh, through the, the, the person John, uh, he writes seven letters to seven different churches. And those letters to those churches, they don't call individuals in that, in that church to repent primarily, they call the whole church. They say, hey, your church, let's just take Living Hope as an example. Hey, God said, Living Hope, you guys are not doing a very good job together at reaching out to these people. You need to repent of that. You need to repent of that. And so often we read the scriptures individualistically, you, when God's saying, Living Hope, you as a body of Christ, do this or do that. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, you guys have heard this uh, before, God says that his people are the light of the world. They're the salt uh, of the earth. So uh, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. In, sec in 1 Corinthians 3, it says that, that you are the temple of God, that God dwells in you, the Spirit of God dwells within you. And then 
uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that uh, you are the body of Christ. Every one of those places are plural. Now, what's interesting, we sing this little song, I, I used to, uh, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. You know, when we're talking about, well, I'm, I, I'm a light of the world, I'm not going to hide under a bushel, I'm going to let my light shine. But every one of those places we just talked about are plural use. There, really, there's not really good theology to, you know, I'm going to hide, I'm going to let it shine. It's we're, we should let it shine. I mean, really, that's a much better interpretation of theology. It's not just that you're going to shine individually, but that we as a body of Christ are going to let it shine. Now, it makes a difference in how we deal with one another and look at the scriptures and how we're doing those kind of things. Um, most of the instructions in the New Testament, almost, almost every instruction, not all of them, but most of them are, are plural, meaning that the commandments are for, for the church together, not just individuals. And we take them so individualistically. And we especially do that in the Western culture, and we especially do that in the Bible Belt. We take them individualistically instead of uh, corporately. And certainly, uh, there's things that are individualistic. In, in, the, in the text, we have things like when a brother takes you to court, you should do this. It's talking about a particular person. And he talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, God talks about particular individuals having to do particular things. But then he immediately comes back uh, to the plural. And when he says that you need to love your enemies... He's saying you as a church need to love your enemies, your corporate enemies and enemies of the individual, but as a, as a group. I, I used to love and hate group projects. How many of you guys have ever done in school group projects? Most of you have done group projects. That means you do them in a group. Well, uh, the reason I loved them is the idea of them is great. I get to have help, right? But in actuality, the biggest group project that I ever had was my senior engineering project of which there was two in my group, me and one other guy. The other guy I could never get a hold of. He would never do his part, never did anything. And we would, I would finally, he would, it would get to the place where, okay, the first little assignment is due. He would call me like, what have we done? Like, what, what have we done? You've done nothing. I went to my professor, Carl Linden, Linden, Linden Meyer, that's his name, Linden Meyer, uh, an, an engineering professor at Clemson. And Carl Linden Meyer, I'm like, my guy's doing nothing. I cannot get in touch with him. He won't get in touch with me. I said, would you assign me a different project? And I'll do it by myself. He can keep the one. And he said, absolutely. Because he had already had trouble with that fellow. And so he assigned me a different one. The next time that fellow did get in touch with me, I'm like, I've got mine, but I got a whole different assignment. You know? And he freaked out. It's like, I thought this was a group project. Like, well, you didn't do any of that. So group projects, um, they can be really good if you do them as a group. But if if you don't do them, they're, they're not too good. Um, but Jesus is always, basically, the, the monumental assignments and commandments of Scripture are given to you and I as group assignments. That's, that's a, there's a beauty to that. God says, I want you to repent. And when he says, I want you, and he means all of us to repent, then we can be in each other's life and care about each other's repentance and how we as a group start repenting and start caring for each other and reading the Scriptures a little bit differently. Even the very first of the, of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a section called the Beatitudes. Blessed are you if this is true of you, if you're a peacemaker. Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit and you have nothing to bring to Christ. But he, and even the, even the blessings of Scripture, guess what? Every single one of them are plural. 
It's not blessed are you, Robert, or blessed are you, Randy, or blessed are, it's blessed are you guys when you together are peacemakers. When you together know that you come empty-handed and need grace of God to fill you up. There's a beauty to that. It changes the way you look at scriptures. It changes the way you deal with the body of Christ and to deal with uh, one another. Um, maybe we need more God and I time. Certainly we need more God and I time. But the scriptures are screaming that we need more God and we time. And I, I believe that that's true. We were made for community. Um, the gospel goes forth from a community. We, that was part of one of the texts we had today. But in John 17, it says that I want you guys as a body, you together, love one another in such a way that the whole world looks at you and they're like, man, I, I, I long for the gospel and the, the God behind that. I, I long for that. And so the gospel goes forth from a community. And the community was also what the gospel was intended to build. The gospel came to build a people for God's own possession. Now, that was not all just introduction. That's about a little bit, about half the sermon. Um, so I want you to get that. Now, we're going to go and look at a little bit of Romans chapter 12 and related to this plural thing and how we're to do body life together. We're going to just pick a few verses, 9 through 13. The whole chapter is very much about the body of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is also a chapter that's all about the body of Christ. But let's look at these few verses and just talk through them briefly about how the body of Christ should look and, and what it would look like to have the gospel as the center of our, of our church and our relationship. So let me read Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Love, let love be genuine. Adhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Uh, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. So let's just go through these. The first one, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. Now, uh, some of you keep up and keep track of like which version did you use for this uh, yes, I'm talking to the person looking at me, but that's okay. And uh, they like, did you use ESV? Did you get this from NIV? Um, and so um, this is from both. The let love be without hypocrisy is from the New American Standard. That same section is translated let love be genuine is from the ESV. And both of those words uh, in the English have something to do with what's behind the word in the Greek. So um, it's really easy in the Bible Belt to, to learn how Christians are supposed to, to look, you know, what they're, what, how they're supposed to, to dress, uh, what, how they're not supposed to dress, how they're supposed to talk, what they're supposed to say, and when they're supposed to say it, uh, what we're supposed to do, when we're supposed to raise our hands, when we're supposed to shut our eyes, when we're supposed to, to respond to somebody that tells us a, a deep problem, like, I'll pray for that, right? We know how to respond, and we can get along pretty well playing the part and looking the part of a Christian uh, without having real, any real affection or, or friendship with Christ. In fact, we can look a lot like a Christian and not even really know what it means to be a friend of Christ. We can, that, can, that can happen all the time, and it does. It happens all the time. We pretend that we're all right when we're all wrong. We pretend that we're near to God when we're far from him. Um, we, we look good outwardly, and we look like a Christian a lot of times. We dress the part, but there's not an inward reality 
to it uh, a lot of times. That's called hypocrisy. That's called looking one way on the outside, but not having the reality of that on the inside. And we can do that individually. We can also do that as a, as a church. Um, so we can pretend all those things, and we can fool other people, and we can even fool ourselves thinking that we're okay. Sometimes we can fool people for a season, and we can fool ourselves for a season, then we get found out. And what's really scary is sometimes we can fool ourselves and other people forever, and we don't find out until glory uh, that we didn't have the reality of that, and that's terrifying. So to be found out uh, about hypocrisy is not a bad thing. That's a blessing. Um, but we all have fallen short of God's glory, right? We all believe that. We're all sinners. We fall short of God's glory, and when you fall short of something, that means you're lacking something, right? And so that means that you and I all lack, and every one of our relationships are built on the foundation that we all lack. We're all sinners. We all lack something. So it shouldn't surprise you uh, that you turn around and the person beside you, around you, or your spouse, or, uh, or your pastor or your elders, it shouldn't surprise you that we lack something. We all do. It shouldn't surprise you that we struggle with sin because we all do. It shouldn't surprise you that we have temptations and tribulations and sufferings because, what, we all do. You know, uh, we have to, that's the idea of being genuine, being authentic, uh, having real relationships. Um, And the nature of our relationship is built on that fact that we all bring into our relationships sin. We all bring into relationships struggles. Um, one, one interesting thing is when Jesus died on the cross for you, he died on the cross before you ever committed any of your sins. That means this. Every, all your junk was future to, to Christ, right, when he died. That means that he's not surprised by it when it comes. He's taking care of it even in advance. We shouldn't be surprised about our junk uh, with one another. Now, here's what the gospel does. The gospel is God, by his grace, uh, redeems us, and he doesn't count our sins against us. uh, And and he knows all of our junk, and he still doesn't count it against us. And the gospel frees us up not to have to pretty ourselves up, not to have to look better on the outside than we really are, uh, not before Christ and not even before each one another. That's why we can say that living hope, and we want it to be for the broken because we're all that, right? We're all broken. We're all messy. And so let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Well, the only way we can have genuine love is to have uh, authentic love, meaning to, to understand that we, we bring to the relationships brokenness. And, we, you know, the, the beauty of the gospel is we can bring that to, the, to each other and we can help each other out in, in our brokenness. And um, we, we don't have to be prettied up. So let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine or authentic. And then it says this, at whore. What is evil? And that sounds a lot like a door, but that's opposite, right? Hate it. It says, hate what is evil. Um, And so the gospel-centered community creates a very safe place to be broken, but the gospel-centered community also creates a place to do battle with sin, right? It understands we're sinners, but it also is a place to do battle with sin. Uh, God calls us to pursue holiness, and guess what? That's plural, pursue holiness together uh, with you. So it also tells us to make war with sin. There is, uh, I rented a car in Denver, and the car in Denver that I rented had, uh, in every direction, it would tell me my blind spots. Like if there was a car in my blind spot, it would blink over here on, on the mirror part, the outside mirror, the rear view, not the rear view mirror, but the outside mirror. 
Uh, and then if it was on this side, my left side, if there was a car in that spot, it would boink. And then if I was about to back up, my rear view mirror would boink if there was something in the way of me backing up. I love that, right? Uh, the idea of, of, of blind spots is there. Now, every one of you, guess what? And me, we have a blind spot, probably many blind spots. Now, what is your blind spot? You don't know them. Why? Because they're blind spots. <laughs> By definition, you don't know them. That's why we need the body of Christ to help engage one another in each other's blind spots, right? And then we need to be willing to, like, I have them. I don't know what they are, but I'm willing for you to tell me them. And it's going to hurt to hear it, but I want to hear it because I want to deal with them. And that's the plural body of Christ. We need um, the, to, that, to know our blind spots and have people point out those particular blind spots. Uh, my wife just left for Hilton Head, uh, a getaway. She's, she's going today. She, uh, hopefully she'll be there until Saturday. I'm hoping she stays late or not. I want her to come back for my sake, and, but I want her to stay for her sake. And I'm taking my dog, Finley, to the groomer. The groomer is on Liberty Highway, um, and the Liberty Highway, the area that it's close to, is very busy. The traffic is very busy. So my wife gets my attention, and she said, when you get Finley out of the car, make sure you use this harness, and it's very good and very tight, and he can't slip out of it, and make sure that you buckle his um, leash to this place. Don't Make sure you don't mess up and buckle it to this little area, because sometimes he pulls it off. I don't want him to get hit by a car. You know, and um, so I'm already terrified to, to take him, thinking, man, I'm going to put two leashes on and two straps on. And, you know, she said if it was on um, 81, there's, it's a big, wide area. He can see the cars coming, but Liberty Highway, there's a lot of trees next to this, and he just might not think and run out. So very, very uh, scary. But um, we, need to, we need to help each other out. When we see somebody running into the street, we don't just say, I hope, it's, I hope it goes well with you. Yeah. I, you know, you, know you're, you, don't, you don't see your kids playing around at, at home and notice that it's pretty busy and a ball goes out in the street. Like, I hope that goes well. No, you call out them and you're like, stop, right? And that's what we need to do with one another. We need to hate evil and do war against it and help each other do war against it. The, the next thing is this, hold fast to what is good. It's not just hate what is evil. How many of you watched football yesterday? Okay. So uh, Ohio State had a good number of penalties. Um, and when they have a penalty, the umpire or the referee blows the whistle and throws what? A, a yellow flag. Now, what if I thought that my calling is to point out all, you know, hate what is evil, and I just like, Randy, mm, flag, uh, you shouldn't do that. And throwing, how would you like it if there was somebody that always throws flags and blows a whistle at everything you do wrong? Well, we need to be open to that. We have blind spots. We talked about that. But there's more in here. It says love what is good, right? Hold to it. Cling to what is good, what is fast. Um, so we don't want just the miserable interactions of pointing out the, what's evil. That's important. But we also want to encourage one another to hold fast to what is good. Let me give you a text, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. says this. Let us consider how to, how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and the more as, as you see the day drawing near. He says this, the writer of Hebrews uh, gives us a lot of good instructions about holding fast to what is good, but we help each other hold fast to what is good. It says, let's consider how to stimulate one another to do right. 
we often stimulate one another to do wrong. This is saying, let's stimulate, let's, let's consider, like, man, you know, what does, what does um, Tim struggle with? How can I help him in my conversations with Tim, stimulate him toward love and good deeds and encouraging things? Man, how can Randy uh, look at John, the pastor, and like, man, you know, he's, it seems like he's really struggling with that. How can I, what can I do this week in particular to, to stir him up to love and good deeds? And considering those things, Proverbs 10, 11 says this, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. How can I use my words? How can I call or text or, or, or meet with one of you or you with me or one of you with each other to like, how, man, let me, let me think through, let me consider, let me think through, how can I stimulate one another to love and, and good deeds? Hold fast to what is good. The next one is this, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, so love one another with brotherly affection. That's pretty interesting. A lot of times as Presbyterians, we don't like affection and emotion. We like truth. And it says, man, love one another. Not just do something, but feel something. And you're like, well, I can't feel love to every one of them. I don't even like them, <laughs> much less love them. You know, they get on my nerves, to be honest. And uh, how, do we, how do we deal with that when God commands us as a church to love one another with a brotherly affection and we don't even like each other? Well, the first thing is love is a choice. Love is a choice more than it's a feeling. When you choose to show somebody love and you keep doing that, guess what happens? Eventually, you become people who like them, and then you start loving them, right? Have you ever had that happen? I don't really like them, but I'm going to love them. And then I start loving them, and I start praying for them, and I start considering how to make their life better and encouraging them to follow the Lord. And then all of a sudden, I start liking them and start spending time with them. I mean, all of a sudden, it changes me. And that's what it's saying here, to have a brotherly affection. So one thing we need to do to stir up brotherly affection to one another is to stir up brotherly affection to one another. I'm going to love David Vanderwater this week, right? I'm gonna, and I'm going to show that. How can I show it? Let me think through those. I think the other way is we can uh, stir up affection for brothers and sisters in Christ when we realize the affection that Christ has for us. Not, not the affection he has for us when we're good, but the affection he has for us even while we were yet sinners, Romans 5. Um, so this is the way we're to, to, and it says that we're to serve the body. Uh, we're, we're, to, oh, wait, we're to outdo one another. To outdo one another in what? Showing honor. So imagine this, that you have a relationship with somebody that's frustrating and you're like, I'm going to outdo them in honor. We usually try to outdo them in other things, right? Outdo them. They get mad at you. You're going to outdo them in that, get madder at them, right? They, you know, they frustrate you. You're going to frustrate them more. You're going to outdo them more. They do you wrong and you're going to do them wrong more, right? You want to outdo. What would it be like if you try to outdo them in honor? They do you wrong, you love them. They do you right, you do them right twice <laughs> as much. They do you right three times, you're like, man, I'm going to give more to them. Hey, can you imagine? what it would be like in a body of Christ. I'm going to outdo the other person. Everybody I say, I'm going to outdo them in honor, if that could be our, our whole idea. Uh, the next thing, it says this, do not be slothful in zeal. You got, you got, how many kids, you know what a sloth is? Uh, what is a sloth? Any idea? Yeah, that's right. 
This is what I got from, this is a sloth. Right? It's like, and it says, don't be slothful. Um, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. What it means is this. Don't decide, like, wake up and like, man, I think that I'm going to try to do something sometime this week to, like, encourage, you know, Whitney or Clay or, you know. I, no, it means don't, don't be slothful about it. Do it. Don't think about doing it. If you think about doing it, you don't do it. Right? It's like, don't be slothful in doing it. It's like, be fervent in spirit. Man, I want to, I want to determine how can I encourage a brother to, to, to love and good deeds, and then I'm going to do it, not just think about it. And what's interesting here is the foundation for how I serve other people is by serving the Lord. You know, the more I serve the Lord, all of a sudden it's much easier to serve other people. Like, as my serving other people is at its foundation, it's serving the Lord. And when I understand that man, the Lord has served me well and given to me well that I can give to other people. So it's really hard if your relationship with the Lord is struggling. It's hard to you, for you to encourage other people. But when your relationship with the Lord and you're being served to the Lord and you're serving the Lord, when that's strong, it's easier to serve other people and to be uh, full of zeal and fervent-hearted toward it. Next thing, it says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. That's hard to do. And be constant in prayer. So in order to rejoice in hope, we have to know God's promises. We have to know what, what is our hope? You know, what is God's promises? Well, when we, once we start understanding God's promises, then, then we start having hope, and we can take the hope in God's promises, and we can start living in our situation, uh, whatever our situation or current reality is, no matter how difficult it is, we can start living with the hope that God is going to do this because he's promised to do this particular thing, and we can rejoice in that hope, and we can help one another rejoice in the hope that God has given us. Even in the situation that you might be in, or a brother and, or a sister might be in, there's still hope. God's promises are really good. And then it says we're to be patient in tribulation. There's no way to be patient in tribulation if you don't rejoice in hope. Now, why is that? Because the idea of being patient means you're waiting for something, right? And if you're waiting for something, what's the something you're waiting for? You're waiting for God's promises to come about, all that God promises to do, and you can rejoice in the hope of that. Uh, and that, that all leads, and if you really are uh, rejoicing in hope and being patient in tribulation, then all of a sudden your communion and your prayer life is going to be good. You're going to be talking to the Lord and dialoguing about the situation. Hey, here's how that all comes about in community. In the covenant community of the church, uh, we walk with one another through their rejoicing, uh, and, and through their tribulations. We, we walk with people through the thrill of victory, and if you remember this from years ago, the agony of defeat. And I'm not just talking about Ohio State, LSU, you know, uh, Clemson, and Oklahoma. I'm talking about much deeper than that. We're not, we're not just walking. I, I texted Heath last night, and, and Heath uh, Rosenberger is a big Oklahoma fan. And I told him I was, I, I was sending him an emotional uh, whatever dog. You know, one that you can just like, the grief, the grief dog, right? And I told him, I'm like, now if Clemson loses, you might want to share that dog. Well, that's walking with people through their struggles, through the agony of defeat, but this is a lot deeper than that. This is walking with one another through their victories and the highlights of their life and also walking with people when they get hit by a car. It's, it's, it's going through their struggles. It's, it's rejoicing with them when they rejoice, and it's weeping with them 
when they weep, this is what it means to be in the body of Christ. The next thing is this, and it's the last thing. Uh, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What does it mean to contribute to the needs of the saints? The first thing we think of is money, right? I need money. And a lot of times that's true. That's, that's what they need. But Romans 15.1 maybe helps us a little bit to understand this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. There's all sorts of needs of the saints. It says to contribute to the needs of the saints. What are those needs? The only way you can know the needs of the saints is to what? Be around the saints. Is to ask the saints. Is to understand and spend time with the saints. You can't do the one another's uh, of scripture by being around each other for an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half or two hours on Sunday morning. That's not enough. The body of Christ wouldn't function very well if that's all it was around that time. But we're to contribute to the needs of the saints. We need to spend time to know what are the needs of the saints. Maybe the needs are physical. Maybe the needs are uh, an emotional support. Maybe they're pointing out scripture. Maybe they're just being there. Maybe they're to clean or to do or to pick up something. Um, you know, maybe the, the needs are just to be with them because they're lonely. They're struggling. We've got to be around each other to know those needs. There's lots of them. The one thing that's taught here, in order to meet the needs, we have to be hospitable. Well, uh, when we talk about hospitality, we usually think about having people, what, over, right? Man, they're, they're very hospitable. They have us over. I think the scripture, that's not untrue, but there's a lot more to it than that. I think it's not just inviting people over, it's inviting people in. And what I mean is invite people into your life, and then you move into their life. That's what it's talking about, about practicing hospitality, is not just have people over and you go to their house, it's when you do that that you're going into their lives and they're going into your lives. Practice hospitality, invite them in, and you go into their lives, even though it may be really, really messy. May we, as the Living Hope, uh, go in to, to these particular things and, and this community do those things well. Now let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, has knowing the right things to say and do and looking like the Christian and looking like the part, has that ever kept you... Uh, from the real Christian life? And do you really know what it means to long for Jesus and love him, to know him as a friend? Or do you just know how to play the part? Uh, have you ever seen in our culture, you've been around the, uh, the, the church community or you know, uh, small groups or your friends or just living your own life with your family, and you think much more about you singular than you plural? Do you think about you, me? Uh, or do you think about you, us? Um, what would this group look like if we practiced Romans 12, 9 through 13? What would it look like if we tried to outdo one another in showing honor? What would it look like if we had a brotherly love and an affection for one another? What would it look like? And what would it look like if we hated what's evil but loved and tried to encourage one another to hold on to what is good? How can we help one another to hate evil? What can we do particularly? What can we do to help each other cling to what is good? John 14, 13 through 14 says this. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will give you, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Guess the, the you is what, plural or singular? It's plural. So we, we saw the, the body of Christ living hope. We want to look like this this coming year. But now it says, well, let's pray for it. Let's all pray for it uh, together. Whatever you, at plural, ask in my name. John 15, 7 and then 16. If you abide in me... 
and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is also plural. We think about that so much singularly, individually. If he abides with us, the living hope, if God, if Christ is abiding in us, the living hope, we can ask God things for the church to build up the church for his glory, and it's going to be done for us. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it. So it, God says, I chose not John and David and Randy. I chose you. I chose living hope to be my people. I chose you to be my people and I appointed you that you as the body of Christ would go and that you would bear fruit and that fruit would remain and glorify me. And it, this is a plural you. Does it change the way you look at one another? Does it change the way you approach the body of Christ and the church? Does it change the way you look at Scripture? Does it change the way you want to encourage one another as a body of Christ? I hope it does. Let me end with this verse, uh, John 3, 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, singular, you, plural, must be born again. The church, the people of God are a people that are called from above. There are people that are born from above. A church is born from above. And God brings us forth, not just individually, but as a body, brings us forth as his people um, for his glory. And may we together join together corporately to pray these prayers that our body would grow and that we would commune with Christ corporately. We would reach out and that we would bear much fruit this year uh, to God's glory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. A word that is so plural because you came to make a people for your own possession. Father, when you called Abraham, you didn't call him just to bless him. You called him to bless all nations. So, Father, I pray that as we read your scriptures, that we would read it plurally, that we would look at that and we would long for living hope, the local expression of the body of Christ here that we're a part of, that we would long for it to repent. We would long for us as a group to grow that we would long for us as a group to, to put on the whole armor of Christ so that we wouldn't be tricked by the devil. Father, I, I pray for this body that we would long this year to outdo one another, not in bad things, but in love. Father, give us a, a brotherly affection for one another as you had for us. Father, that we may live life and community for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.